I'm Evan Goldberg, co-host of Marketing Sandbox, the first monthly podcast dedicated to all things technology, industry, marketing, and PR. And hey, I'm co-host Renee Sperlin, a senior digital marketer with a passion for data storytelling, a knack for making sense of disparate data, and a penchant for questioning everything especially the roles of public relations and marketing. And I'm an opinionated tech PR lifer, not afraid to ruffle some feathers while on a quest to help save the public relations industry from two decades of self-inflicted wounds. Each month on Marketing Sandbox, we discuss what's trending, debate the absurd, and highlight the important, and sometimes unimportant, news shaping tech marketers' lives and their daily work routines. We interview some of the most unique, coolest and influential people across the comms spectrum, all in an effort to help you make sense of the challenges, opportunities, and pressures unique to your tech marketing or public relations job. Marketing Sandbox is brought to you by ARPR, a tech PR agency at the epicenter of the future of PR. Hey everyone, welcome back to Marketing Sandbox. I'm excited to have my co-host Evan back. He was on sabbatical for our last episode. So glad to have you back, Evan. Hi Renee, how are you? Good, how was sabbatical? Sabbatical was good. It was relaxing and um, was was interesting to have, you know, a full month of no work to do for the first time in many, many years. Uh, but uh, it was it was great. And I'm, you know, glad to be back chatting and yapping away with you today. Well, I enjoyed living vicariously through your adventures. Glad we could uh, glad we could do that for you. Well, our guest today is an expert on tech media and what they cover and where what stories are most interesting in tech media. But I'd say we've got our own tech media expert here, too. Evan's been in tech PR for his whole career. So before we get into our guest, Evan, I'm just curious from you, what's changed in tech PR since you started? Yeah, and we could I could talk about this subject for probably two or three hours, but I'll I'll let our guest uh, take the bulk of it shortly. I think it boils down to a couple of of things. Um, the first is that the majority of journalists, and I won't speak in absolutes because there are always outliers to to journalists and what they cover and what they focus on, but I will say that somewhat of a majority now focuses less on a specific uh, topic or beat and instead searches for a good story. Um, so f- for example, years ago, you would know a person is specifically writing on, let's say, um, streaming media. And if you had anything to do with streaming media, you would go to these three, four, five, or six people. Now, someone who writes on streaming media is also writing about ad tech. And maybe they're also writing about the security of streaming media. Maybe they're also writing about the economics of streaming media. So it's, it's a bit more challenging for folks trying to land stories, even if you're a media connoisseur, to identify who exactly those reporters are um, to take a story to. The other challenge there is um, while there's been some rebound, I think, in the last year or two, uh, there is still a a deficiency in the number of reporters as compared to uh, years past. I think one of the favorite, my favorite um, 
stats that I share with with clients sometimes is a publication like eWeek, um, which which used to be a little bit more prominent than it is today, used to have 25 full-time reporters on staff. I don't think they have three full-time reporters on wow. staff right now. I believe they have they have one or two and then a couple of freelancers. Um, so there hasn't been enough new publications to start that start that make up for, you know, that deficiency in reporters um, as compared to, you know, when things were at their height, probably, you know, early 2000s up until about 2006, 2008, something around that time range. So there are other things that have changed and I'm sure our guest is going to get into it, but those are some of the, the most common things that I see when I reflect upon, you know, what it was like doing tech PR in 2005 versus what it's like doing it in 2021. Exactly. And you were talking about the shifting beats, the, the turnovers, the other thing that came to my mind, not only are they writing about more things, they're moving between publications more frequently, which makes it a lot tougher to, to nail down that, that one person who writes the, these one in-depth articles about a certain subject. Yeah, and it's sure, you know, most of our listeners have probably heard about, you know, media contraction and newsrooms shrinking. And it, it's it's more complicated than that, because while, yes, maybe the, the Wall Street Journal's tech section has less writers than it did before, it actually has a bigger pool of freelancers to pull in from. Um, so if you're thinking more outlet specific these days, you're actually going to pigeonhole yourself because you don't really know the extent to which, you know, people freelance for, for certain publications. So the better advice is to look very specific at actual stories, actual pieces of content, rather than, you know, put your blinders on and look specifically at an outlet. Well, that is actually a great segue talking about stories. So we really want to hear from our guest today about storytelling. So Evan, why don't you introduce him? Yeah, so I have known Sam Whitmore for around 15 years or so now. Sam Whitmore started his career as a tech journalist, and around 1998 or so, he started Sam Whitmore's Media Survey. He is the founder, CEO, and editor of um, what is essentially an analyst firm for tech PR professionals. He helps um, it, tech PR agencies and in-house teams um, really prepare to uh, engage tech journalists. Um, he has a uh, website called Sam Whitmore's Media Survey, which I strongly encourage you to check out. And Sam will give a little bit of an interview for later, um, which really has great content, tips, best practices, media lists, all the things that anyone trying to pitch a tech story would need to know. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Evan. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on, Sam, is you have such um, experience and, and a wealth of knowledge about how not just the media landscape, but how specifically the tech media landscape has changed over the years. And you started Sam Whitmore Media Survey in 1998. And there's really nobody who is more in tune with the tech media landscape since that time and perhaps even before that time. 
curious to start things out is, you know, what made you want to focus your career here and, and what makes you most interested and keeps you interested in the space? Uh, to focus my career on tech media? Yeah, tech media, tech PR. Um, it was the specialization that I just sort of accidentally acquired. <clears throat> uh, yeah, and so um, I was lucky enough to be born early and I got my really my, my, my early experience at publication called PC Week. It's now called eWeek. But when I got that job, this is going back when dinosaurs roamed the earth, Evan, like 1984. Um, nobody had ever heard of Bill Gates and you know, Michael Dell's company was called PCs Limited, and it was just getting like this backstage pass to this world changing industry. So I was lucky to just ride that wave for 14 years, right place, right time. And then I quit and accidentally backed into this idea called Media Survey, which is basically competitive analysis of what works. Somewhere right now, as we're talking, some editor is greenlighting an article where somebody's pressing post and something is going up on the Internet. Like, why are these articles greenlighted? What about it makes it good enough to be published? And that's my mentality. I'm always trying to analyze why something is good in the eyes of an editor. I take that research and then package it for PR people and that's really what media survey is. Well, that's really what we wanted to dive into you um, with to talk about today. Although I will say I'm old enough to remember PC Week. <laughs> yes. Throw that out there. But um, tell us a little bit about what that formula is. What what makes a good story? What have you read that's good recently? Oh, you know, a lot of it, Renee, is situational. There are there are some standard answers that editors have given me over the years and also just in my own experience. One is the counterintuitive take. If everybody thinks it's this, well, what if it's that? You know, and, and people want to know that sort of opposing point of view because nobody wants to be in some sort of a social media conversation or a face-to-face -face conversation and have the wrong point of view about something. So um, that's one of the go-to formulas. If you can come up with the counterintuitive take or the aspect that people hadn't really thought of, that's, that's a big deal. The other thing that has happened in recent years, and I think we can thank LinkedIn for this, is that one of the big formulas that works best is um, personal empowerment, professional development. It used to be like 10 years ago, the only place you could find that was Inc., an entrepreneur, and uh, maybe Fast Company, and, and LinkedIn. And now you've got Fortune, and you've got uh, dozens of publications that are trying to help people who are like 25 to 40 divine. Uh, the whole future of work thing is like squarely on this, like how you navigate the greasy pole and become successful. And, and it's, it's like personal payoff. So instead of news just being news for its own sake, publications are increasingly trying to become service publications. How can we directly empower the individuals to be grateful to us? <laughs> so they learned a tip or they, they, they managed an interview better, a job interview. 
So those are the two big things, a personal empowerment and also sort of like the counterintuitive take. For those who write about technology for a living, whether that be for a publication like Fortune or Inc., or maybe they have their own Substack now or, you know, one of the newer mediums, what's changed in the way they approach not only finding stories, but the way they write them from perhaps the tech journalists that you worked with, you know, 10 and 20 years ago? You mean um, the way sort of editorially and almost grammatically? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, I think that's a really smart question and an important point because mm-hmm. uh, people inside the business always talks about uh, talk about axios and and smart brevity, and you know the thing is that when, when we all went to school and you know we just never questioned the fact that writing is composed sort of like inverted pyramid and the headline and the lead is linked to the headline. And then it sort of sort of tapers down. And that is old thinking because because of texting and because of email and because of slang, um, formal English is not really as important. Lip service is paid to it. Don't get me wrong about that. You know, it's important to be able to know how to write and know what a gerund is and all that. Sure. Yep. But 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 in terms of people consuming information, they don't want to drag their eyeballs or you know big hunks of text. So what's new in the past three to five years is sentence fragments, bullets, hyphens, ellipses, and just sort of newslettery communication style, which allows people to skim and get most of the value out of it instead of sitting down and writing things the way that we all wrote them in college, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and, is that due to the fact that there's so many choices for information gathering now or just have tendencies of younger readers changed so much that the media industry is conforming now to what what, what younger readers preferences are? That's a whole other topic. <laughs> this younger readers thing, that's a big deal. But I think what we need to do at this stage in the conversation is segment what we're talking about. 80% of readers, 80% of any audience is grazing. They are encountering this content without necessarily having sought it out, shows up in a, in a news feed or in a search result. And so they're not really fully committed to really consuming what it is, but, you know, they might they might explore it. And that's where the low commitment editorial phrasing and low commitment uh, colloquial language uh, really works because that enhances engagement for people who aren't necessarily bearing down and looking. 20% of an audience really cares. Like if you're reading modern healthcare, you're probably in the business. Right. And you want depth, you want authority, and you don't want slangy stuff. You want you want information that you can go into a meeting in the next hour and sound smarter than you than you were. So there are editorial opportunities to be able to create that kind of content, but increasingly, Evan, it's it's in verticals or it's it's really in a professional, uh, a really niche professional environment. Sure, yeah, I'd like to meet the person who reads modern healthcare for fun. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that 
that person exists. That doesn't mean you can't have a column, columnist with a voice, you know, but you, you know, you get what I'm saying. Renee, yeah. I, I interrupted you. <laughs> Oh, no, 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 you're, you're all good. I'm a fan of the trend. We actually have a quiz that we do for all of our new hires doing onboarding about writing and search optimization. And one of the questions that's always missed is, how do you close an article? And, and they always say, well, you summarize your key points. That's what everybody was taught in college. But, but the right answer on the quiz is, no, you tell people what they should do next. What's that call to action? Why do they read all this? Um, but, but that's besides the point. But um, definitely a fan of that trend helps you digest the information much faster. Another change we wanted to talk to you about is companies buying up or starting their own media. So, so HubSpot bought The Hustle and Dreesen Horowitz is supposedly building its own media platform. How do you see that impacting the future of media? Well, uh, not every agency thinks the way that ARPR does. I mean, you've always been fundamentally integrated, so I'm not surprised to hear a question like this. But content is like this amazingly bankable magnet to pull people at the top of your funnel. And um, people that might not necessarily discover you might discover you through a blog post or podcast or a newsletter or other kinds of content. And so you think about what HubSpot does, right? It, it just en enables the so-called customer journey. I don't know what language they use, but it's probably something like that. So uh, content is like this amazing, powerful magnet that allows you to relate to the value proposition of a company without audaciously, you know, being this hardcore salesy person about it. So um, I think that you will see more of that. You know, what's interesting is I was thinking about this this morning. It's like, why hasn't the skim been picked up by somebody? Mm. You know, like Morning Brew was shrewdly picked up by Axel Springer through Business Insider. And and the skim was sort of like beat all those those other two to market. You know, and, and that is like a very sweet demographic, you know, younger women. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's bound to be acquired at some point. I think maybe like the investors just want to get their best deal. But um, anyway, but that's the, that's yeah. always the you know, the investors getting their their best deal is is always at the forefront of it. And it could be just a simple economics issue that's prevented it from from being acquired at the moment but your point it does when you look at what has been taken up and then the convergence of other media properties and maybe the the skim owners don't want to sell you know that could be too maybe they think there's more money to to be had out there it, it could be i want to bring up something though is like there's a there's sort of a, a layer beyond that beyond the newsletter and that's the youtube influencer and the tiktok influencer and uh, they've been called creators in the last 12 to 24 months um i think we know what we're talking about like the, yep. the, the charismatic younger individual who just is in the right cultural place at the right time maybe a little bit of humor and I think in the next year or two, we're really going to start to really understand, just like movie stars and musicians and there are people who are like well-known in those genres. I think we're going to get 
sort of like the Gary V's, you know, we're, we're going to start to see probably a half dozen to a dozen sort of first name um, endorsers, you know, cultural people, and they will be affiliated with like a uh, Peloton or a Fitbit or, you know, bourbon or mm-hmm. cannabis or something. That's sort of like the next step in show business meets business business. I have a contrarian view on something, Sam, and I, oh, good. I, I'm interested to ask your opinion on, on this. So in 2005, when I started at where I think I first met you at the Horn Group, um, I was given as an account executive $25 a month to take a reporter out for coffee. And I was expected to take a reporter out for coffee and build a relationship, talk to them about what they're (laughs) writing and do all those types of things that, you know, New York is the epicenter. Everyone was there at the time. You know, now that's no longer the case, obviously. But I met a lot of journalists. I I remember I had coffee with with Brian Stelter in 2006 when he was, you know, working um, uh, at his his media uh, property um, before he became big and famous. I view the term... um, relationships and talking about relationship between PR professional or marketing professional and journalists as nonsensical. And what I mean by that is it's, in my opinion, it's much more of a transactional than a relational engagement. And a lot of times we see job postings or there's people looking for a PR agency. And the first question or the first statement is, what is your relationship with journalists? Name me 10 journalists. Why, how did the, the, one, how did we get to this place where the whole conversation is around relationships? And two, do they matter anymore? Can you just have a good story? And if it's pitched appropriately, what does the relationship part even matter as long as you're, you're, you're holding up your end of the transactional bargain. That's uh, that's thought provoking. Um, my 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 quick glib answer is is the um, power of relationship is proportional to how vertical the media title is. Mm. So if you are in robotics process automation, you won't have difficulty communicating with the beat reporter if you've got a couple of clients. Excellent. And then, right. Yep. Yeah, and so if you want to cultivate the journal and the times and CNBC, then um, you are far from contrarian, my friend. You know, uh, <laughs> I think it's a myth that you could sit down with somebody. Uh, um, no need to drop any given name, yeah. but you know what I mean. Yeah. And that's where it's ultimately transactional. I have been around the track. And I have all this gray hair. So I do have a couple of anecdotes about how relationships can be built. And and and, and a lot of them are just um, coincidental or, again, right place, right time. I keep using that term. One, one issue was there was a... Um, a case where a PR person pitched a re- pitched a reporter on a tier one story, and it turned out that the tier one story was going to be written and it was going to be published, except that the client's name was going to be taken out of it. Mm. And the PR person got a call from the reporter. The reporter said, I know this is probably going to be important to you. We are going to run this piece, but we're not going to mention your client's name. So 
I'll give you the opportunity to just pull the story. We can run something else and you can pitch that story to some other publication where the client's name can be mentioned. That way you can get your publicity and it's not going to make any difference to us one way or another. It wasn't a big story to us anyway. The only reason that that miraculous conversation took place was because there was a relationship between the reporter and the PR person, and it was built over a number of years. So in situations like that, that was a big win. It was like a disaster. It was a disaster averted because the client would have been, you know, would have been steamed if the piece ran and they weren't in it. Right. But in all likelihood, right, that relationship probably began due to a successful transaction of a of a some sort of engagement between the PR person and the journalist at a prior date and time. And I guess that's a way to build relationships, maybe, as it starts out purely or almost exclusively transactional. And then you if you know it works out well for both parties, then a bit of a relationship begins to form. Yes. And then it's like real life. If you meet somebody and, you know, you think you might be friends, well, you're at that crossroads where you can either follow up with them or not. And, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'll friend you on Facebook. But, you know, it just boils down to do you want to do you want to pursue, you know, that relationship? And, And in my experience, right, I've never been in PR, but I, in my experience, PR is sort of collectively guilty of just focusing on the target list. And they just like, 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 like sure. right. You know where I'm going on that mm-hmm. instead of instead of just taking the, the top three or four people on that list and servicing them disproportionately, meaning send them a URL once in a while. Hey, FYI. Um, or, you know, catch them, catch them interviewing somebody interest. Oh, I see you quoted somebody from MIT Media Lab. You know, there's a there's a there's an equivalent lab in Stanford. Here's the person who runs it. Here's their email. Have a nice day. You know, for, for PR people to to take the time to communicate with a reporter without asking for something, I find that that is a really rare PR person that that does the job that way. And it is such a missed opportunity, in my opinion. It's just like real life. If you want to be, you know, a f- friend to somebody, you know, it doesn't happen automatically. You've got to make a gesture or two and then stick with it. So, excellent point. Renee and I now get pitches for this podcast. <laughs> and and oh, we've never hilarious. <laughs> Oh yeah, we had someone wants to send us a a, a bottle, a, a set of of energy drinks. Was it sponsored by Shack? Because you know that's very relevant to this podcast. <laughs> that, that, that must fascinate you to be pitched by PR people. <laughs> it started in like uh, April or May, and there's about three or four a month that comes through now. So it's it's fun. We get a good and laugh out of most of them. None of them have been related to tech. <laughs> Yes. Well, you know, that that is like an age old tactic from from publicists to send you, you know, a cross a cross pen and pencil set or. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, That kind of thing. Well, we're getting we're getting a feel for the other side. So it's yeah. Live a day in their shoes. We do have a lot of people in our audience um, who aren't PR pros. We tackle lots of tech marketing topics, but sometimes, you know, they have to figure out what makes a good story or 
dabble in PR, what are, what would your advice be to those listeners, you know, who maybe can't dedicate all this time to following the reporters? What, what kind of couple of tips would you have about what makes a good story, when to pitch? Oh, God. Um, you know, for people that aren't like living and breathing um, the inside baseball of media. Yeah. You know, I wish I were more like that myself because media is just like any other tool in the toolbox. It's good for some things and not good for other things. I think the power of earned media is utterly overestimated when it comes to uh, moving people along in the buying journey. Um, uh, my advice overall would be imagine a toolbox or like a golf bag with eight or nine clubs and in the course of a round, you'll use all of those clubs, but not indiscriminately. If you're in a sand trap, you use the sandwich. So I wish in my experience that more people would be cognizant of what earned media is good for and what it isn't good for and stop flagellating the agencies to get to try to get tier one business press, you know, for some dubious reason. Um, that is one thing they could do. Um, I think another thing that they could do is start to understand youth and, and, and bake an awareness of youth and demographics in their messaging. And this is where I, I, I alluded to this with Evan earlier in this podcast said the number one thing that is giving um, media heartburn right now is retaining younger readers financial times new york times wall street journal bloomberg they are all panicking because their audience is gradually aging out and younger people don't look at media brands the way that our parents did because like they're automatically prestigious younger people know that that's simply not true so that's given way to creators and all that so if i'm in marketing and i'm not necessarily a media like an editorial minded person if i'm just a marketing person i would start with and, and marketers cmos do this all the time you know research like what what market segments are are moved by what messages and what do they do and what's fun for them and what do they eat and where do they go and then work back from there so i i think that the power of earned media is just gradually lessening over time and you know you're in good position just because of the nature of what arpr is the way you think but not every agency is now, a lot of people subscribe to media surveys. This is something that I know. This is something that I know is, is also, you know, a challenge in the media survey subscriber base. It's like, it's this sort of slavish, slavish belief in, whoa, we get, we've got to get, you know, ink, like get over it, you know, use yeah. the right, use the right tool for the job. I saw a, um, a tweet from a reporter the other day that, um, they're the amount of pitches they're receiving for stories that aren't relevant for a month or two right now is just so much. There's so much news and the, the time they have to even consider some of these stories is so minimal. And, um, the pressure, even at, even if they're cooking out, you know, one story a day or so forth, like they're, they're overwhelmed by these pitches more so than ever. So to your point, what's the real end goal is, is the advice. What are you really looking for? Um, and what can you communicate internally 
to your your CEO or so forth about the value of trying to get a story if this if tech PR is not what you live and breathe every day. I would recommend this newsletter called The Hustle. And there is a weekly email. You get a daily email for free, but there's a weekly email called Trends. Costs 300 bucks. Mm -hmm. Best 300 bucks I ever spent because it is focused on all of the entrepreneurial opportunity that exists with sort of, you know, wacky, you know, seemingly wacky business ideas like window cleaning or, you know, what they do is they study Google trends and Google analytics and they, they, they study surveys and, and they have all of these data points to track what is resonating with that ideal demographic that like 25 to 40. And um, I think they do a better job than any publication out there in terms of like tier one or whatever, because they are attuned to this personal empowerment thing, right? Mm-hmm. Gig economy and the big, the big quit and whatever, whatever the parlance is these days, these people are focused on how are younger people who are basically disenfranchised in a lot of ways who corporations or almost unnavigable now in terms of career path layoffs and whatnot. So there's a lot of people who just want to do it on their own. And, and so I think if I were in marketing, I would, I would overweight my consumption with newsletters and podcasts mm. and underweight with media brands because media brands are trailing edge at this yep. point. leading edge of podcasts and, um, newsletters. And I think if, if we ever do this in like 2023, we're going to be looking at AR VR and uh, you know, early metaverse. I'm going to give myself more hair. (laughs) But I agree. I mean, that's next. That's what's naturally next. I mean, that technology is being, it being perfected now for ubiquity and, you know, three, four five years from now, that's, that'll be where the podcast goes. Um, we have one more question, Sam, and, and it's a little bit more current event ish, less, um, sort of industry trade secrets. Yeah. Be curious, your take, since you have your ear to the ground so much in, in the technology sector. So uh, tech, big tech, startup tech is under the microscope more than ever. Um, whether whatever side of the political aisle you're on, big tech is a boogeyman in some way or not, the you know, we're talking about new regulations and the FTC is is gearing up. Curious, you know, what do you think of the sentiment that has changed about tech? It's sort of gone from hero to, um, I won't say zero, but somewhere in between. And how do you think, you know, tech media is prepared to cover what is going to be uh, probably a very challenging couple of years of introspection for some of the larger tech brands that are out there? Let me start with the end of that question. I don't think that they're very prepared to cover it because on the back channel gossipy world that I live in, it's really hard for media brands to build sort of inside channels with Amazon and Facebook and Apple because these are all like paramilitary organizations culturally right now. 
Yeah. They, There's a lot out there on Amazon's corporate comms department and how ruthless they can be. You know, and we're just getting, okay, so they're ruthless, yes, but also even in a more benign way, these companies are so powerful and it's sort of like in the jungle when a, when a, when a, when a creature doesn't have any natural predators, like, you know, how do you shut them down when there's no natural predators? Well, in the industry, there are just no natural predators left against an Amazon, you know, maybe Shopify, but you know, Amazon is so diversified. Now they're a freaking airline, you know, among, among and, and pharmacy and, you know, what aren't they? So they don't, they don't really have any natural predators to, to knock them back. And historically me, Media has been a counterweight to very powerful companies. Right. Um, you know, Microsoft and IBM are two examples of companies that were really beaten down by the media, um, you know, in my era. But that's not really possible right anymore because the, um, the publications are um, not well infiltrated into these into these cultures. So the best they can do is get on Twitter and say, oh, California streaming. I got my Apple announcement and I, I get to show up on September 14th like everybody else. You know, that's mm -hmm. not that's not reporting. So the, the media is not in a position to be a counterweight. Um, so that gets back into the early part of your question, like, you know, how is this going to go? And, you know, I really I really don't. I don't really personally buy into that there's a lot of animus uh, against big tech from people that use it. I think the extent to which they deserve criticism is in the way they treat employees. I think Amazon is basically like Andrew Carnegie <laughs> beating up on the steel workers. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. you know, they have, you know, they have major issues to answer for in terms of how they have treated their employees. So I think that there's a vulnerability there. The only thing that I think big tech really worries about is, are we spending enough lobbying money? And we're cranking it up now because it looks like they're coming after them to break up some of the. Uh some of some of the companies facebook and, and google in particular we are going to find out yep. how the sausage is made we will find out if they have spent enough money because well politically facebook is a very very powerful tool to get to get reelected. Mm -hmm. it's absolutely yeah. perfect when you have companies like facebook that is that are essentially three fortune 500s in one company if you split up Instagram, Facebook, and WhatsApp, you've got three Fortune 500s or 1000s. Apple, if you take ear, ear pods out, is its own. It's like the 20th biggest company in the world. It's just the AirPods alone. So this is a story that I am <clears throat> probably most interested to see unfold. I'm looking forward to all the leaks. I'm looking forward to people trying to cover this <laughs> in the next couple of years. And I think it's you know something that a lot of people in tech PR should actually pay attention to because there might be some great opportunities to insert their brands into stories either in support of or be contrarian to some of the things that are going to come out of the news cycle regarding these more established tech players. Yes. And the opportunity is going to be almost on a moral basis, Evan, I think. It's almost going to be you know, responsible capitalism. And you, know, you think about the meta trends the last 
year or two, DEI, climate change. It, it, it was sort of went through the Trump era and it was like, wow, you know, we have one more chance to get this right. And so there's, there's, there's like a lot of, a lot of energy now to really be the, the best society that we can be. And it's interesting that the leadership is coming from, from business. Um, so I agree with you that startups that are coming from a position of treating people fairly and, and being ergonomically minded and respectful of culture and gender and all these other things that matter to so many people, and, and they're going to need communications professionals to, to, to shepherd them through because there's no precedent for any of this. There's no precedent for any, any the communications world has never operated on this wavelength before. In fact, quite the opposite. Communications pros and clients have avoided politics or social issues, but uh, that, that, that can't be done anymore. And so the people who, who can divine the right path are really going to do well. There's no precedent for this. I think that's a good uh, motto for the last year or so. (laughs) It's true. Sam, Sam, where can people people learn more about Sam Whitmore Media Survey? Oh, this this media survey thing. I almost forgot. Um, Mediasurvey.com is the, the website and we are about to, by, by the end of this month, September, 2021, um, we will have newly designed website. It's I'm really quite proud of it. It's not quite done yet. So that, and then my email is sam at mediasurvey.com. And um, I live on email. So, and I'm a zero inbox person. So I'm <laughs> oh, sure that's, get, a, that's a topic for another time. We can do yeah. that one another time. <laughs> sam, thank you. So thank you so much, Sam. Thanks, Evan. And thanks for now. Yeah. It was fun. It was fun. That's it for this edition of Marketing Sandbox. We'll be back next month with more banter and another special guest. Until then, Renee, happy almost fall, and we'll talk to you all again soon. Happy fall. Happy fall.